0: Hello and welcome to the Church's Radical Reform. My name is Christopher Lamb and this podcast is focused on the efforts by Pope Francis to reform the Catholic Church. Now the Synod process has reached a crucial part of its journey. In the Vatican, participants from across the world, cardinals, bishops, laymen and yes women, have gathered for a month-long assembly. They are meeting to discuss and reflect on the results of all the consultations and dialogues that have taken place so far during the Synod, and to work out what a more synodal church looks like. The meeting will take place over the month of October, and will be followed by another gathering in October 2024. But what has really struck people so far is how this synod gathering is like no other in the Vatican. Inside the Paul VI hall, just next to St. Peter's Square, cardinals, bishops, lay women and men are seated around tables. No one has a seat which suggests they are above anyone else. The Pope also has a seat at one of the tables, although he does have a slightly different chair to everyone else. Nevertheless, What all this signifies is the very different process being adopted to previous synods, which itself is a major development. The table suggests that people are being encouraged to listen to each other. So how is this process going to work? Just what is going on? I'm here with Austin Ivory, who is one of the experts uh, in the synod, uh, an expert theologian, and. He is here to explain to me what is going on in the synod hall. Because Austin, we've seen the Paul the Sixth Hall in the Vatican set up in tables, and this is new.
1: Why is the hall set up in tables for the synod? Yeah, it's quite a sight. Uh, you so traditionally synods have been held in the in the synod hall, the Aula del Sinodo, which forms part of that Paul the Sixth building. Mm-hmm but it's the traditional Synod, Synod Hall layout uh, is theatre style. And rather than using that room where the uh, where, where the seats are all very closely, tightly next to each other and everybody's looking at a daze, um this is not there. It's in the rest of the hall where normally the papal audiences are held. And throughout that hall there are these quite large round tables uh, at which seats 10, 10 or 11 people, uh, all with uh, tablets in front of them, which are fixed to the table and all wired together with a, a cloud program on it. And basically the the, the tables that are set out to allow the work of the synod to go forward in small groups. And that's the big shift in this synod from previous synods is that most of the work is being done in small groups. But even when they're not working in small groups and they're listening to speeches, they're still sitting around those tables. Can you explain how it worked before in silence and therefore why this is different? Well, I mean, sinners have evolved a lot. And of course, under Pope Francis, they've been changing quite a lot. But basically, you have people giving speech. Well, first of all, you have only bishops. Uh, who are members of the synod and who vote and who give speeches. Uh, sometimes you've had invited guests giving speeches, but in the general principle would be to be at a synod, you're a bishop and you get to speak and you get to vote. Uh, in uh, and, and most of the speeches happen uh, during the day. Increasingly, they've had small group meetings then at the end of the day where they have a more free-flowing discussion. What's changed now? Is that 70%, I'm sorry, 25% of the synod members are not bishops. Now, the headlines say, you know, women get the vote for the first time. Yes, that's true, but it's not as women. It's also priests, uh, deacons, religious men and women, and lay men and women. Uh, so, uh, the, this element of the synod is what's so uh, different. Uh, and as a result of that, the number of the synod members has increased. So traditionally, it would have been around, I think, two hundred and eighty something like that. Now it's it's basically three hundred and sixty. Is uh, the the three hundred and sixty four was the original number uh, for the for the synod. Uh, so twenty five percent of those uh, are are not bishops. Okay, so round tables
0: for to facilitate discussion and discernment, less speeches. That's obviously quite significant because that facilitates discernment and listening and avoids the polarization that, that Pope Francis is worried about.
1: Well, okay, I agree with you. Yes, fewer speeches. So there still will, will be, at the beginning of each uh, module, we can talk about the modules in a bit, but at the beginning of each module, well, there will be interventions. There'll be actually a, a theological reflection, a biblical reflection. There'll also be a couple of. Um, witnesses, people who are talking about their experience, um, and there will be also moments in which representatives of the groups address the whole uh, assembly. So there still will be speeches, but if you look at the calendar, it's very clear that most of the work is happening you know, within the small group whose task it is to, to answer the questions set out in the working document. So they're, 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 those questions which are divided into modules... Uh, they're working through those questions in the course of the month's uh, assembly. Okay,
0: so they're gathered in a circle for discussions. Now, these discussions are not just free-flowing; they are structured. Can you explain how that discussion works? Uh, which we know is is termed the spiritual conversations. How does that uh, take place? So, this
1: is again the significant shift in this synod. As a result of the process of the Synod so far, it began, as you know, in October 21 and has been through the national and continental stages. We're now in the universal stage uh, with the two Synods in Rome, this one and the one next year, which will conclude the whole three-year process. What has emerged from the Synod process thus far is the importance, because remember this is a Synod on Synodality, the importance to Synodality of the method which has become known as conversation in the spirit. And at the beginning of the working document is the only infographic in the documents. It's set out very, very clearly and has been again explained uh, to the assembly. And in the retreat before the assembly, they all did it, some of them for the first time. So, very quickly, it involves a not, it's not a discussion, it's not a debate. People speak from experience. They do a first round where they each speak for a few minutes. Uh, usually, I think it's going to be about four minutes for each round. And uh, they say whatever, whatever's on their heart, whatever they want to say. And then the next person speaks and says whatever's on their heart. And the rest just listen. So there's no debate or discussions. Everybody, at that point, everybody simply listens to each other. Then there's a period of silence, very important, where people are actually listening to the reaction in their own hearts to what they've heard. And then in the second round, what they're invited to do, and this is what some people I think find difficult and is new for people, they're not supposed to sort of introduce uh, a new topics or say something new themselves, but rather to respond to what they've heard in terms of the the impact it's had on them. So for example, they might say, you know, I've been very touched by what I heard there or uh, this this comment I heard there has really opened for me uh, a, a different way of thinking. Or you might say, you know, I I, I don't like what I've heard or... so. They're really reactions you're giving in that second round. Then again, more silence. And then the third round, the final round, is a more free-flowing discussion. But again, it's not a debate. What's happening in that third stage is that the group seeks to move towards a kind of agreement or consensus about what has emerged from that exchange. Now, there might be tensions and disagreements, or there might be you know, an emerging consensus. It kind of doesn't really matter. They're not trying to force a consensus, but they're seeing whether there is one. And the question all the time, what is the spirit saying to us? What do we think that there, there is uh, happening here? So just to, just to explain how this works concretely, and by the way, this all takes time. You imagine you know, 11 people each having four minutes and so on. Uh, there is a facilitator who is not technically part of the group. They're... they're part of our group of experts they don't they're not members of the synod and they don't vote and the facilitator's task it is to move them through that process and you know to keep them to time and so on in addition they have a, a rapporteur who's elected by each group and it's the rapporteur's task to gather up what they've heard and write up a, a, a summary which isn't supposed to be a summary of everything but to capture the fruits of the discussion which they then present to the whole assembly so there are 34 of these groups the uh, the rapporteur presents the the fruits to the General Assembly, and then in the assembly, there's people are allowed to respond to what they've heard. The small group then takes what they've heard back into the small group meetings, and they then modify or further discuss it. And then at the end of it, they produce a report, a written report. So you'll have 34 reports at the end of each module, and there are four modules uh, that they're going to be going through. So at four moments in the next uh, few weeks, there will be these small group reports.
0: Okay. And what is your role on this? Because you're not technically a voting member of the Synod, you are an expert, although you're in the Synod Hall and helping the process, what are you going to be doing?
1: So I'm one of the experts, but I'm not one of the expert facilitators. I'm one of the expert theologians. Now our group, which is by the way, smaller than the, the uh, sort of group of uh, facilitators, there are only about, I think, 25 of us. We are theologians in the broadest sense of the term, but we're people who have considered to have some kind of expertise on on synodality theologically and so on. Our task is to read not just the reports of the small groups, but also the individual submissions made by people, because everybody can put what they say in writing and send it to the secretariat. Uh, and we read those, what's coming out of the small groups, and what we're identifying are the trends, the common trends. Remember, there are 34 different groups. Where is there a, an emerging consensus? Where is there tension? What questions need further to be considered? And also, you know, people might be saying things which require a little bit of, if you like, of theological commentary. And now this is all for the sake not of the assembly, so much as the group that with the smaller group within us who will be finally uh, writing the the synthesis document, which will be presented to the assembly in the last week. And I'll just briefly explain that in the last week. So around twenty second of October, a draft will be done. Or uh, which seeks to capture the fruits of the whole assembly. And that will then be worked on by the small groups who will make modifications and suggest amendments. And then by the end of the whole process, hopefully we have a document where everybody clamps and says, yes, this captures what we've done. And so that will be the outcome, effectively, of
0: this Senate assembly, which will then go forward to the October
1: 2024. Indeed. And it's been stressed that this is not... What we would traditionally call in a synod a final report or a concluding document, because the concluding document is the one in October next year. so what this document was it, it is being called a synthesis document. It seeks to capture the result of these deliberations, so it may it may say these are the questions that need answering. Uh, these are the things that need further exploration. here there is there is great agreement or here there is great disagreement. it's literally capturing what's happened, and that then becomes the basis for the reflection over the next year, that's to say, from November twenty-three through to September twenty four, that becomes then the basis for the reflection by the whole church. It'll be it'll kind of go back to the Labour Church. Also they're saying, and none of this has been announced yet, I think, but they're saying there will be various commissions probably set up to study the implications of some of the proposals. For example, canonical commissions, theological commissions, pastoral commissions are to say, okay, were we to do this, you know, this would need to happen. So I, it'll be it'll be very interesting. To, it'll be, it then becomes, if you like, the the basis of that a year's discernment by the whole church. Oh. Right. So,
0: why is this process though so important? Well,
1: you know, this is the thing I think that many people have had difficulty grasping, and I do understand why because it's something very new. That the fruit of this exercise is not um, it's it's not kind of particularly any particular to ter- issues theologically or doctrinal, although they will come up, of course. The object of this whole exercise is synodality itself. It's a new way of proceeding, of operating, of thinking within the church, which centers on participation, communion, and mission, the three key words of synodality. That is to say, the involvement of people in processes of discernment prior to decision-taking in the church. And, I guess the fruit of the of this assembly, but also the fruit of the whole exercise uh, is greater synodality in the church that is to say, people understand, grasp, and like what this way of proceeding and so far you know this is one of the great i mean it's commented on a lot in the in the working report yeah you know, this this assembly now that we're in this final continental stage comes after seven continental assemblies, and then, of course, in the earlier stage, all the dioceses of the world bringing parishes and other Catholic organisations together. And the the fruit is all in those reports where people say, we like this. We believe this is how the church should be. And they recognise it as being, you know, the Pope keeps saying, this is not a parliament. And people say, this is not like anything else, and it's ours. It belongs to us as a Catholic church. This is our tradition or it should be our tradition and what we we're, we're doing is recovering this so i suppose the whole synod on synodality is how do we learn to be that way
0: and it is obviously uh, been stressed that there are people who disagree with each other inside the synod it's not just everyone with the same viewpoints and i suppose at a time when the world in general is more and more polarized and people are in their own echo chambers. This idea of a process where actually people can talk to each other
1: and disagree and and find some synthesis is quite important. Absolutely. And thank God the people in the assembly disagree because they are to some extent reflective of the wider church. And we are a church of enormous diversity uh, geographically um, and culturally as well as, of course, in terms of our views on things. And... Part of this exercise is, and synodality is about learning to walk together, literally walking together is what synodality is. How do we walk together, contain those tensions, and allow them to become fruitful rather than falling into sterile polarizations? Now, when I say fruitful, I mean how how can we help these tensions, allow these tensions to open up new ways of thinking and new horizons, which the Spirit may be proposing up to us and pointing us to? Um. So, I might go into this synod with a very stroll position A, and I encounter somebody in my group who has a very stroll position B, which is antithetical to mine. And what one hopes is that through this process, person with position A begins to understand the importance of position B, the good faith of position B. You know, the position B is also protecting things that are important. And, and likewise from B to A, and that we all come together to a C place, a place of sea, uh, where we actually all come to see things a bit differently, a position which is neither A nor B. And this is what Pope Francis describes as the overflow, because it overflows the banks of our own, of our thinking. So this is the great fruit of, uh, and Pope Francis stressed this in, in his opening speech, it, harmony. And harmony is about, having people who are used to being first violinists to learn then to play as part of an orchestra, we're not asking them to abandon their positions, but we're asking them to open themselves out uh, to new ways of thinking, which the spirit may be uh, offering to us. Uh, And when that happens, we can say, yes, the spirit is at work, because, of course, ipse harmonia est, the spirit is harmony. That's how the spirit works. Reconciles diversity. It doesn't lead everybody to agree, but it it gives them the means by which they can walk together and see things differently. Now, you mentioned that there are tablets on the table. Can you explain about how those tablets work? (laughs) On our experts' table, we actually don't have them, but I I did see them being demonstrated before uh, the Synod itself started. I'm not giving away anything here because it was in the public part of the the Assembly. Uh, And the people uh, around the table were asked to practice voting and they were asked to say... Uh, to press yes to say that they were here. Uh, and there were a few dealing problems, but I'm sure they'll get ironed out. But yeah, so they press buttons on there to say yes or no uh, when there's a vote. They have to vote in their small groups as well because what they read to the assembly has to be agreed on the, by the small group. Um, and then the other thing they use the tablet for is to ask to speak, and it's quite clever tech. All you have to do is press a button and then it automatically cues you and then it comes to you automatically Uh, And then it shows the time that you're given. So it might be, I think it's two minutes maximum. And as you're reaching the end of your two minutes, you get a beep and then another beep. And then it literally shuts off the microphone. So all that's done and that's the tech. So you can speak in your small group, but you can also speak to the whole assembly. Exactly right. And you can also make a written submission as well. They say is that you, you know, everybody has in that first round I was explaining earlier, uh, in a sense, that's what, where you're setting out what you think in response to the questions in the working group. Now, you can make a few notes and just do it from those, or you can, if you want, either before you give your remarks or afterwards, write it up and send it into the secretariat, in which case it will be taken into account as part of the general material. Okay. So you you submit, you can submit as an individual
0: as well as a group.
1: But you don't have to.
0: Okay. Now, there has been... Amongst us journalists, a lot of discussion over the confidentiality slash secrecy uh, of the process of the Synod.
1: Can you explain a bit about that? I'm in favour of it uh, because I think what's going on inside the Synod is a process of communal discernment where we're moving, to use one of the great Synod slogans, from I to we. Now, in that process, it's very important that people have complete freedom uh, to say whatever they want to say, but also to kind of change their mind. They shouldn't have to be feel that they're looking over their shoulders, that they're going to be questioned or or attacked for what they say outside. And because we're all we're talking about the formation of a body here, um, the problem with uh, with people knowing what's going on inside is they can disrupt that process of moving to the we. So what they're saying on the confidentiality is basically what goes on inside the hall stays inside the hall. You are not allowed to talk about what's gone on. So, you know, you can't say, you know, in my group there was a discussion about X or you can't say my group this person said that. Absolutely, that would be breaking the rules which have been made very clear to us in the regulations. But obviously we're going to have this discussion now about the process. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of the, the, the rules and the regulations is that individual cinema members are free to, you know, to to speak to journalists about their own views on things. You know, Of course, why wouldn't they? I mean, they're coming from different parts of the world precisely to share their views on things, and that's okay, as long as they're not talking about what's happening inside. It mean, does my own role. We have a special obligation to confidentiality because obviously we are going to see you know, what's coming out of the group's um, so I know we will take that obligation very, very seriously, I hope I'm um, you know in a sense it just explaining what yeah.
0: and and Pope Francis did say that um you know it's important that that journalists understand what
1: process is being adopted here, and he stressed that yeah, he said when you're speaking to journalists uh, which implies of course that he expects people to be doing that, yeah make sure they understand that this is a process of listening. it's not a debate, yeah, it's not a parliament yeah.
0: Finally, what about the opposition to the Synod? Um, there's not just been opposition, there's also been indifference. What are you expecting to see in terms of opposition?
1: Uh, will that have an impact on the proceedings inside, do you think? Well, it depends on what you mean by opposition. I mean, there has been a criticism of the Synod, of course, from many quarters, um, both from what we might call the more progressive and more traditionalist sectors of the Church, um, who have objected to the synod for, for various reasons, and um, you know, those objections have been heard. There's not really much one can do in response to them because either people want a process where simply what the church currently believes and understands is simply reaffirmed. That's one model for which is all a synod. Uh, and another one is, well, these reforms are necessary, then the Pope needs to implement them, so either does there need to be any discernment, so really, uh, this process is not well understood by those who don't understand the need for discernment. But I do think it's understood by the church in general. I actually think the main body of Catholics get this, and particularly the ones who have taken part in synodal meetings up till now, they get it. And I think they are very, very supportive, both of the method uh, and and of the process. During the month, of course, there will be many meetings in Rome by people who have particular views, uh, and there will be you know, speeches given and criticisms made. And I'm sure the Synod members, you know, they, they will read the same blogs and newspapers and so on. But I very much doubt it will have much impact on what's happening inside. There's a very, very clear methodology. There's a very clear pathway that's being followed that's, that's intended to produce uh, 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 you know, a, a synodal fruit. And even though we don't know what the result or the outcome and the fruits of this assembly will be, I'm pretty confident that the method will be adhered to and the process will actually go very smoothly. I have every confidence in the Senate. And it was also, I
0: think, significant that the Pope responded to the dubia cardinals. It strikes me that Cardinal Fernandez, Tucho Fernandez, the new doctrine prefect, is having quite an impact. And he is... With Francis, with the response to Dubia, presumably that that Cardinal Fernandez had a a role in helping res- draft and response, um, that a marker has been laid down, and those responses from the Pope were were very theologically rich and strong, um, but it does seem to me, I don't know what you think, that Cardinal Fernandez is having a big impact already in
1: his role as Doctrine Prefect. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's given whatever 50 interviews since his appointment is is in itself a, a mark. I think I think we are going to see, well, we've already begun to see a far more vigorous uh, response from the prefect of the Doctrine of Face. Um, and, you know, I think that's all good. In terms of the, the response to the Jubia, of course, you know, the publication of them takes place right on the eve of the synod. And uh, just for those who haven't been following, you know, the so-called Dubia cardinals, uh, they published their second uh, questions to the Pope, because claiming that they hadn't received satisfactory answers to the first law. But what they didn't do was publish what the Pope had told them back in July, and that's what was published on the eve of the Synod. So we could all see very clearly how the Pope had responded to them and actually restated a you know, pretty well-known Catholic kind of doctrine and understanding, and that wasn't good enough for the cardinals, and I think that was... The fact that it wasn't good enough you know, exposed them. But I think one of the great benefits for the Synod of that of that publication was that some of the questions, of course, that they were raising uh, are questions that have come up already in the Synod and are in the working document. And I think in some ways it frees the Assembly to perhaps go into those topics with more freedom because they know exactly where the Pope stands. Uh, and so I think in, in a strange sort of way, the Jupiter Gardens have done a great favour to the Synod. Well, Austin, thank you very much and um, have a good synod.
0: Thank you. The Church's Radical Reform is sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham, in partnership with the Tablet. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.